I began my ministry as a youth pastor in 1996. It's a long time ago. It's before some of you were born. Uh, we used to take a trip every year in our youth ministry to a big conference. It was called, I mean, back in the 90s, they had great names for things. So this one was called Teen Jamboree, which, of course, nobody would name it that anymore because they would make fun of it forever. But at Teen Jamboree, you would, uh, there would be uh, competitions in sports and in uh, drama and all sorts of things, and different churches would kind of compete against each other, Bible trivia, stuff like that. One of the things that um, happened every year on the Saturday night, right? Go home on Sunday. On the Saturday night, they would have this, this grand moment where the, the speaker would stand up and they would share the gospel message. And uh, students would, would stream forward at the end when he would invite them to come down and commit their lives to, to Christ in some way. Now, some years it was clearer than others. Some years you weren't quite sure what the message was and why the students were going forward. Other years, it was genuinely a, a message about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and how uh, belief in Him and trust in Him will, will bring eternal life. So students would stream forward uh, and they would pray with, with somebody. Every year, uh, we had dozens of kids who would go forward, kids who I'd been working with all year long, kids who I knew who didn't believe in Jesus, and they would stream forward and they'd go. And of course, we were thanking God for that. But every year, we would go away from this event and um, the kids would go back to their school and it, they'd just go back to their lives. There, there was no difference. There was no change in their lives at all. So they had had this commitment, this radical moment where they would go forward and commit their lives to Jesus and then, and then nothing. Go back to their regular lives. It was like it never took place, which of course raised the question in my young pastoral mind. Was it real? What was it? Was it genuine? Did, did the faith that they exhibited on that one night, in that one moment, was it genuine faith? Was it the kind of faith that, that would save them? Did God count it as, as real? This has been a question actually that has plagued me for years when I went to seminary and, and after even as a pastor now, it's one that comes up frequently. Is repentance meaning turning away from your former manner of life, is repentance necessary for a person to be saved? Or is it enough for you just to profess the faith? You say, I believe in Jesus, no life change, no effect, no impact that the gospel has, no fruit of the Spirit, but you're, but you're saved. This is a big theological question and is one that I'm sure that all of us who have been Christians for a while have faced I've come to realize that actually the, the best way to explain genuine saving faith in the Bible is by using three, three words. I've, I've used them before, and in our church we use them frequently. I would say that true saving faith has to have three marks. One, it has to be a professed faith, meaning that you have to believe in the Lord Jesus. You have to believe something that has content. It's not just believe something general about Jesus. You have to believe in the Lord Jesus that he... Uh, was, you know, he was the son of God, he was crucified for your sins, died, buried, and rose again on the third day, okay? 
and that by faith in him, you can have eternal life. So, so you have to profess faith. That's, the, that's, that's how we baptize you, is when you profess faith. Um, but secondly, you also need to practice that faith. That, that profession needs to find its way outward. It needs to work itself out. And third, it needs to be a persevering faith, meaning that the profession and the practice need to continue through one's life, that when you stop professing and practicing, you've proven that it was never real to begin with. Professed, practiced, and persevering. This passage that we're going to look at in Luke's gospel today is about the second of those. It's about the necessity, the need, for one's faith to be practiced if it's going to be real. It's not enough just to profess it. It must show up in the fruit of one's life for that profession to be real. So, this is a passage about how uh, John the Baptist calls the people of God back to the Lord before uh, Jesus himself comes. It's in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. And in the passage, we're kind of going to look at it under two headings. First, uh, the need for repentance, and then second, the specifics of repentance. The need of repentance, specifics of repentance. Specifics, I mean, like, what does it look like? He gives some great examples of what repentance ought to look like in, in this passage. So here we go. First one, the, the need for repentance, Luke chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysianus, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. These are usually the kinds of passages that make our minds gloss over. They're like, we don't know any of these names, we don't know who they are, and we don't know why they're being listed. Luke, can you just get to the point? Um, this is actually uh, kind of important. Luke is trying to give you a timestamp for when these events took place, right? So instead of saying in the year A.D. you know, 5 or whatever, A.D. 28, uh, he tries to stamp the time with who's, who's leading, who's ruling in the day. So, so if we were doing this in, in uh, our time, uh, we would work from the, the highest office down to the, to the nearest. That's what Luke does here. And so in our time, it would be like in the, in the days of Justin Trudeau, when he was the grand ruler of Canada, and John Horgan was the premier of British Columbia, and Henry Braun was the mayor of Abbotsford, and Jeff Buckdom was the great high priest over the house of Northview. The word of the Lord came to whomever. Or you could just say when, when Bonnie Henry was queen of the land. The idea, though, is that this happened in real time. And these are governing authorities. You can actually look in the history books and you can find that this is actually a real thing that took place, according to, according to Luke. He's carefully investigated it. This is what is going on in these times. And this is really common, this kind of list of names, when uh, the authors of Scripture are trying to say, okay, this person's a prophet. 
So in the Old Testament, what you'll find is uh, the word of God coming to a particular person during particular people's reigns. And so in Micah verse one, verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So Micah is a prophet, and here's the word of the Lord coming. You can read this same thing in Hosea and Zephaniah. There's all sorts of the prophets in the Old Testament. This is how the word of the Lord came to them during a particular king's uh, a reign. Now, I need to remind you that uh, Israel had a particular kind of pattern in their relationship to God at this point. We've tried to show this over the last number of weeks, but just let me remind you that the way that it worked was God had given a promise to Israel. He was going to care for them, look after them, and they were going to obey him. Of course, in every situation, after the promise, they disobeyed. And after that disobedience, God would send a prophet. Because he loved them and cared for them, he wanted to call them back to himself, and he would send a prophet, and the prophet would cry out to them and say, you need to turn away from your wickedness. They then would turn away from their wickedness in response to the prophet, and then as a result of that turning away, God would reinstate reaffirm the promise that he made up here. And then, of course, they've reaffirmed the promise, and then the wickedness, and then prophet, and then repentance, and then promise again, and then on and on and on we go. That's the entire Old Testament. That's the way it works. So what you've got in this passage is Luke saying, all right, so this guy, John the Baptist, is one of those middle, he's the prophet. That's where we are in, in, in the cycle of Israel's history. God has sent a prophet to call them back to repentance. And in fact, he uses the language here that John is in the wilderness. And that's kind of a tip to say, hey, do you remember back in that long time ago where Moses was out in the wilderness and, and the people were wicked and they were out in the wilderness because of their, their wicked deeds? John's out in the wilderness because he's trying to evoke memories of that day and saying, look, you, the people of Israel, corporately, I mean everybody, and also individually have turned away from the Lord their God, and they need to repent if they want to see his salvation. So that's the scene. That's the setting. Verse 3, he went, John, went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Notice here he's going to try to show that uh, John it was predicted all those years ago in, Isaiah's, in, in Isaiah chapter 40. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. Yeah, John was in the wilderness. He was preaching. Prepare a way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. This is not a literal path. This is morally. You, you have crooked ways. You have crooked paths. Make... make the way straight for him, meaning repent, turn away from your wicked deeds. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads, again, morally, crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. You hear his message. Say, basically, uh, Luke is saying that years ago it was predicted that this John would be here and he would preach this message of repentance to the Lord's people, and as a result of their repentance, they would see the Lord's salvation. All of them would see the Lord's salvation. But the phrase that you really need to focus on in that little passage is that he preached, John's message was 
the baptism, he preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's an important phrase. When they had to summarize John's message, it was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, uh, baptism in those days, this is just a word that actually means to immerse in water. So uh, you take somebody and dunk them in the water and you pull them back out. It was symbolic, largely. It was symbolic of washing away the old and, and coming out into a newness, a new commitment, a new kind of life. So John was preaching that, look, you, you guys in Israel who've turned away from the Lord your God, what you need to do is you need to come out to the wilderness and you need to make a commitment to God. You, you need to admit that the way you've acted has been wicked and idolatrous. And I'm going to baptize you and turn you away from what it was that you, as a sign, that you're turning away from what you used to do and that you're washing all of that away and then you're going to come out to a newness. And that newness is going to be full commitment to my message that you should obey the Lord, make the crooked paths straight and all that kind of stuff. Baptism of forgiveness. I'm sorry, baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. I don't know if you've, you know, in our day, maybe the way that we should think about this is that I had friends when I was in college who went into a fraternity <laughs> and uh, you know when they'd go into fraternity they'd never tell you while they were in the fraternity what they had to do to be initiated into fraternity but after they finished college and stuff they would end up telling you and I mean some weird stuff right they'd go into the basement of the place and they'd be you know doused with water or they would have to do certain rites or activities in order to show their brothers in their fraternity that they were now committed to that and most of the time it had this same kind of significance we need you to prove that what you used to be not a chi p fee before but now you're a new chi p fee it's not a fraternity but maybe it could be used to be a Kai P, not a Kai P fee, now, you're, now you are a Kai P fee, and there's a different kind of way of life, a different kind of commitment that you have to us. Now, of course, the difference between a fraternity and what John was, was calling to is the fraternity was basically baptizing you into a, a life of debauchery and drunkenness, and John was doing the opposite. Turn away from that and be initiated into a commitment, a recommitment to the Lord your God. So this is his message. And it was really pointed, okay? The way that John preached is probably not the way that you would want your pastor to preach. Listen to what he says in verse 7. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized him. This is what the preaching of the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. This is what it sounds like. You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't begin to say to yourselves, Oh, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Hmm. That's some good preaching there. <laughs> I've got to be honest, I've, I've, I've long read that passage in my life and thought, now that's why I want to get into preaching, is so that I can call the people I'm talking to a bunch of snakes. You brood of vipers. When I was in uh, 
New Zealand years ago, we, we used to travel to Australia to some friends' place in what's called the Sunshine Coast, just north of Brisbane, Australia. And they have lots of, in Australia, they have all sorts of snakes. The whole nation should not be inhabited. There's so many snakes, especially in Queensland, which is where Brisbane was. Anyway, we were at my friend's house. I remember walking into the house first, and he said, there were a bunch of frogs all around. I said, ooh, cute little frogs. And he said, don't touch the frogs, they'll kill you. So that was my signal that... Uh, Australia is not a friendly place to, to visitors. The next morning, though, uh, I, I got up early because of the time change. And uh, my friend, he went for a run and he came back and he told me, hey, you need to come back out. I think I've told this before. He came back, you need to come back outside. And he walked me across the street and, uh, and he showed me that on the, the playground structures across the street were all of these, what they call common brown snakes. They are like the third most poisonous snake in the world and easily the most aggressive. And the reason, they were all hanging on the, on the, the playground structure across the street from his house in this, in this housing community, like Augustine housing community, or just, you know, you know maybe your, your housing community where you have house, 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 and then you have a park. In that park, a bunch of common brown snakes wrapped around the playground equipment, right? That's what they should do here if they really want the kids not to play on this stuff during COVID, eh? I was so freaked out and I asked him, why in the world are they there? He said, well, what happens is they have to burn off the sugarcane fields over there and every year these snakes come out and we have to call the, the, the authorities and they come out and they spend a day chasing the snakes around. This is the image, though, that John is using. He's saying, uh, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? In other words, there is a fire of God coming and you have come out to the wilderness because you slithered your way out here and you're just trying to run away from what you deserve, that fire, you snakes. And he calls them snakes for, for a reason. Brood of vipers means, means the, the offspring of snakes or probably in this context, he means you are the children of the snake. And by snake, he's probably a reference to the, the Garden of Eden and the serpent there. So in other words, you're children of the devil. You guys think that you're children of God. You think that you're children of Abraham and children of the promise, but you're actually children of the devil. You know how I know? Because you haven't repented. You've not produced fruit in keeping with repentance, it's only words for you. Your standing is, you're, you're relying only on the fact that you are Abraham's children. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance though, right? That's, that's his message. Let, let your practice match your profession. My son throws really fast baseball pitches. Um, I have had, I've, I've, you know, in practicing and stuff, I've caught for him several times. I don't really like doing it anymore because I'm very scared for my life. I mean, he throws a ball, you know, not 90 to 95 miles. And I'm like, he's really throws the ball hard. And um, so I'm, I'm very afraid. And he throws these pitches that dive and all sorts of stuff. But one of the things I really like to do is I like to taunt him by saying to him, uh, you, you know, if you pitched to me, I could. If you pitched to me and I was hitting, I would absolutely hit that ball out of the out of the park. Like it's not even hard. And then of course he gets, oh yeah, you want to stand in against me, dude? I'll stand in against you anytime. Then he say, okay, let's go, let's go do it right now. And I say, well, I can't do it right now, right? Because I got, you know, 
I gotta clean my you know sock drawer or my my back hurts or it's great being old. You can blame it on all sorts of stuff. What what he's trying to do is say to me, look, old man, you're all talk. It's just profession with you. All it is is just words coming out of your mouth. If you really, if you really want me to believe that what you're saying is true, then get out there, stand in the box, and face the 94-mile-an-hour fastball. And when you hit it out of the park, like you said, then I will believe your words. But until then, not believing it. And this is essentially what John is saying to these people. You, you, you guys say that you're the children of Abraham. You, you uh, have the promise of God's blessing upon you as a nation, and yet it's all talk. Because you don't act like it. You're basically hypocrites. Your, your fruit needs to show up if we want to believe that you're a real Abraham tree, a real God tree. And so in, later on in Luke, you get these passages that basically say this. Luke 6, verse 43, Jesus is speaking on this occasion. He says, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People don't pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the mouth, or the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. If you want to know the nature of the tree, look at the fruit. And John said, I'm looking at the fruit, and you're not bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. The fruit I see does not show that you genuinely have turned away, repented of, your former manner of life. It's all just words for you. And don't say, he says, we have Abraham as our father. Don't you, don't you use that as an excuse. Well, we're going to be okay with God because in the end, we're basically given these promises and it doesn't really matter what we do. No, 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 no. Don't say that. I was, when I was a kid, I, I, I went to a church and uh, it was what we call a mainline church. It, I didn't really believe very much in, in what I call the gospel. There's a lot of, you know, it was just a place that you went. Kids went to the church because their parents went to the church and... And all the people I went to the church with, I remember going to seeing them on Sunday in the church or maybe seeing it in a youth ministry in the midweek. And then we would, we would leave and I went to school with all of them. And I'll, I'll just tell you now, I, I, not a single one of them genuinely believed what they pr professed dur during church. They would s say the creeds and sing the songs and you know, act like the Christian, but then they would leave the church and what they'd end up doing is the exact opposite of the things that they were, they were professing. But when I'd ask them, do you, like, do you, are you Christian? They would end up saying, well, I go to church. Like my parents are Christians. So what are they doing? They're relying on their heritage. They're relying on the fact that they are in, in a church. I used to love to tell them, look, being in a church makes you a Christian as much as being in a garage makes you a car. And that's what John's saying. Just because you come from the right family or just because you come from the right social standing or just because you go to a you know, synagogue or whatever, that doesn't matter. It's not the issue. The issue is, is your life matching your profession? Is your life matching your profession? What does the fruit say? 
Because listen, fruitless trees are in danger. You hear that language at the end of this. The ax is already at the root of the trees. You ever go out after the summer, a real hot summer, and you see the hedging cedars at the end of your property, and like there's a green one, green one, green one, brown, green, green, brown, green, black. When you go up to the brown ones and the black ones, and you're like, well, clearly they're dead. How do you know? Because of the fruit? They look dead. They smell, they're dead. What do you do with them? You keep them up there just because you like the color differentiation? No, you, you, you rip them out and you find more, more trees. This is the image that he's saying is, look, the, look, the ax is already at the root of the trees. God is, God is ready to judge. And he's going to judge trees that don't bear fruit. There's a danger in being a fruitless tree. So look, the, the whole point that I, I think needs to be stressed here is that those who claim they believe and follow Christ but prove the opposite by their actions are not genuine Christians. I'm going to say that again just for the sake of clarity. Be as straight as I can with you. Those who claim they believe and follow but prove the opposite by their actions aren't genuine Christians. Now listen to me. I'm not talking about, look, if you want to be a real Christian, you have to be perfect. I'm not saying that in any way. Nobody is perfect. We sin every day. But I am talking about knowingly and unrepentantly persisting in disobedience. See, a genuine Christian sins every day and they seek God's forgiveness and they want to turn away from that. Their heart is toward Christ, is toward God and his law. But the, 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 the fake Christian is somebody who says their heart is toward Christ and toward him, but genuinely and unrepentantly and persistently keeps going down the, that path, knowingly sinning. They shouldn't expect to receive anything from God except judgment. So in, in, in the passage, I just read a minute, a second ago about the tree and its fruit. Um, in, in Luke's gospel, the next passage on, Luke tells another quick story and he tries to give you another image of what he means. In Luke 6, 46, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, it's not enough just to hear them or agree with them, put them into practice. I will show you what they're like. They're like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock, right? Built a solid foundation. And when the flood came, the torrent struck that house but couldn't shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. In, in others, the one, the one who hears but doesn't practice, he has no foundation. He thinks he has a foundation, but the proof of the foundation, whether or not it's going to stand or fall, whether it's going to hold or crumble, comes when the flood comes, when the torrent comes. And this is what John is saying, is that God is coming and he's going to judge. And when he brings that judgment to many of you, Many of you who said, Lord, Lord, who've professed faith, will prove by your actions that you weren't real, that your foundation was faulty. 
you're deceiving yourself. So, the question that we need to answer is this. Is there any point in your life at which you're knowingly and unrepentantly persisting in disobedience? If the answer to that question is, yeah, there, there is, there, there are points at which I am deliberately disobeying the word of the Lord, then man, don't rely on your heritage, don't, don't rely on some profession of the past, don't rely upon the fact that your parents were, were great Christian people or that you hang out with great Christian people. John is saying to you, repent. Be genuine. God will forgive. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can turn around. You can turn around right now. Must repent and show evidence, fruit of that repentance. All right, so that's like the main focus of this passage. And then John gets into, he answers some questions from some of his, you know, it's like a Q&A now. And he gives some specifics of repentance, and that's kind of the second heading here. In verse 10, what should we do then? The crowd asked. And John answered, look, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Now listen, you need to know that people in those days did not have like closets like we do or pantries like we do. I, after Christmas this year, I was like, oh, I got, I got new sweaters. Look, my new sweater. I got, I got new sweaters, so I want to get rid of the old ones and stuff. So you go in there and you weed it all out and you give that stuff away to MCC or whatever. And you go into your cupboard and you're like, oh my goodness, there's all sorts of, everything's stuffed. And this is old and that's old. So we, we're used to having lots of clothing and lots of food. In those days, it's not the way it worked. Like if you had more than one shirt, the likelihood is that you were well off. There were lots of people who had no shirts, nothing. So what he's saying here is, look, don't hoard. With your stuff, don't, don't hoard. There are people all around you who have great needs. And by hoarding the stuff that you have, the food and the clothing, and not sharing and not having a heart, a disposition toward sharing and giving away, you're proving that you're not genuine. See, because a genuine, repentant person who loves God is somebody who's going to share, and they're going to have that disposition to do so. You actually see uh, an interesting example of this in, in the book of Acts. He, Luke wrote Luke, and he also wrote Acts, and so he has this great example in the early church of what this kind of sharing looked like. Acts 4.32, he said, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. So somebody who owned some property in that church noticed that somebody else in the church had great need. And they said, well, I have two pieces of land. I'm going to sell this one piece of land, and I'm going to give the money to the church so they can share with that person over there. That's what a genuine Christian looks like. Verse 12, even the tax collectors came to be baptized. 
So first the crowds came, they had a question, and even the tax collectors came to be baptized, and teacher, they asked, what should we do? Well, don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. See, the way that tax collecting in those days worked was like this. Uh, the Romans wanted the taxes collected among the Jewish people in, in Judea, in, the, in what's in present-day Israel. But that was a long way away from Rome, and so what they would do is they'd hire out the tax collecting business to the lowest bidder. The, basically, the person who said, listen, I'm going to do it for you, and I'm going to, I, I'm going to you know, do it for this price. The price was what Rome wanted, plus a little bit extra for the person who was going to, you know, who was going to collect it, saying, oh, this is the surcharge that I'm going to make, I'm going to make that my money off of this surcharge. And Rome said, cool, you have the contract. So a tax collector, or a group of tax collectors, would get together and they would say, Right, so we're going to sit on the side of the road here and we're going to collect the, the taxes for traveling. A toll, basically. And then people would go by and they'd hand the taxes over. Now, the tax collector had a choice. Either he could take what he said he would take, which was minimal, just, just what he had contracted with Rome that he was going to take, or because Rome was so far away and because the tax collector, in order to ensure that they got this, had his own, like, police, they could say, eh, it's going to be double what I said to Rome, or triple, or on hate, it's a special Tuesday, and it's ten times as much. Oh, you don't want to pay it? Say hello to Guido. So they could extort and steal money from people, and of course you can imagine if this was happening on our roads, you know, there were people stopping you all the time, and the, and the rates were going up and up and up, and the tax collectors were filthy rich, and you knew it, and they were, work, they were Jewish people working for the Romans, you'd be so mad at them, and that's why tax collectors were despised so much. What's interesting about this is they, these guys come and they say, teacher, tell us what to do, and John does not say, quit tax collecting. Don't do it anymore. He says instead, do it with integrity. You don't need to overcharge people. Do your profession with integrity. Don't take advantage of your position and charge more than, than you need to. Do you remember back in the beginning of the pandemic, there were people outside of Costco, they like, would go in and buy all the, the toilet paper and they would come out and say, toilet paper for sale, you all need it, it's gonna cost you $100. <laughs> That's what he's talking about. That kind of price gouging. See, true Christian people don't price gouge. Their eyes are not upon themselves and using their position for their own benefit. Their eyes are on others and saying, how can I be fair and equitable and help you? Then some of the soldiers, verse 14, asked him, and what should we do? What should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your, your pay. These are probably local police. In many cases, probably the local police are the, who are protecting the tax collectors. And they can, because they're the, they're, they're the heavies, because they've got weapons and they've got the power of the government, they can add to their pay, which was not substantial, not a lot of money, right? Probably like today, cops don't get paid an enormous amount. And so there's a temptation for them to add to their pay by saying to the person they pull over or you know, telling the person who, who, who is, you know, might be considered guilty of a thing, hey, listen, I'm happy to overlook this, this uh, issue if you're willing to you know, slip me a couple of hundreds here or there. Oh, you don't want to do it? Well, of course I could 
claim that you are resisting arrest and put you in jail for a very long time or, I don't know, make sure that you uh, are go out of business because I find some little thing in your, in your business that is, that's wrong, I could do that. So it's going to be far better for you if you just give me, give me the money. So this is the way it works. I don't even, around the world these days, this is the way it works with some police. I was in Mexico a few years ago and, and uh, it, was, it was on a bus with a bunch of high school kids and we were stopped by police just in the middle of the road. Everybody else was going by but our bus was stopped and it was stopped because it was filled with a bunch of Americans and they just, the police came on and they talked to some of the people who were with us, and, who, who were translating for us and they, they just said, we're gonna stay here unless you guys wanna pay. You can pay, give us, give us some money and you can keep going. So I was like, well, what do I do? They said, don't give them any money because if, if you do, then they're gonna be like a kilometer down the road and they'll stop you again. So we sat there for like two hours, waiting, 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 and finally they, they let us go. But yeah, that, that's what we're talking about. Somebody's using their power and standing in order to extort other people's money. And, and what's interesting about this is that, is that John doesn't say to the soldiers or the local police, stop being police, stop soldiering. He doesn't say that. He says, in your soldiering, do it with integrity. Do it with a focus on others. Here's the big thing, though, and let me finish with this. When you look at those three replies, you realize quickly that this is all about money. How should repentance show up in the life of somebody who's been genuinely transformed by the grace of God? Well, it should, it should hit the way you use your money and possessions. Like, I ought, I ought to be able to see in, in your sharing disposition, in your heart toward the other, in your desire to help those in need, I ought to be able to see it, the fruit. I ought to be able to see it, pluck, pluck it off the tree and say, that is a genuine believer in the Lord Jesus. At the end of John's gospel, or, um, Luke's gospel, he tells this story. This is, this is like a main theme for him, the use of money and possessions as a sign of the gospel hitting home with a person. At the end of the book, he gives you two examples, two different guys. One of the guys is what, what's called the rich ruler. The rich ruler you know, comes to Jesus and says, hey, I, you know, what do I have to do to be saved? And Jesus says, keep the law. He said, oh, I kept it all. So Jesus says, hmm. all right, so sell your possessions, give the money to the poor, and then come follow me. Because I think your money is is your true love. So set aside the money, prove that you believe the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me by coming and following me. And of course the story is that the guy became very sad because he was very wealthy. And he chose in that moment, no, my money has my heart. Jesus, you don't. And he shouldn't expect to receive anything from God. But the next chapter, you get a story of another rich guy, a tax collector, in fact, a chief tax collector. He's the guy who probably made the deal with the government. He's the one who oversees all the other tax collectors, so he gets his cut from everybody. Super rich guy named Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus climbs up in a tree. Jesus walks by. Jesus said, I'm coming to your house for lunch today. Everyone gasps because they're like, he's going to the tax collector's house. Those guys are dirtbags. While they're sitting there, at lunch, 
The tax collector realizes the grace he's been shown by the presence of Jesus in his house. I mean, to go and eat with somebody is a sign of acceptance in that culture. And so here's Jesus accepting the tax collector. And the tax collector says out loud to everyone, I, I, I'm going I'm to give away half, half of my money. I'm going to repay the people I've, I've wronged, you know, four times or whatever it was. And Luke, by putting these side to side, is basically saying, which are you? Because one of them is commended by God, the one whose life was touched by the gospel, the one who saw grace and responded to it by sharing and integrity. And the other walked away sad. So, so look, do, do you use your money in a way that proves the gospel has made little impact on you? Do you use your money in a way that nobody could tell that you've been touched by God's grace? That his sharing with you has now led you to, out of the warmth of your heart, share with others. Listen, if that's the case, and I'm going to tell you, don't, don't, don't rely upon your heritage or some thing that you said years ago when you walked forward at the teen jamboree, don't rely on that, repent, turn around. But if you're somebody like Zacchaeus, who uses your money as a demonstration of the sharing and grace you've received in Jesus, because he counted all his loss and gave his everything, so now you counted all his loss and you give everything, he was rich became poor that you might become rich. So you who are rich are going to become poor for the sake of all others that they might become rich. If that's what's happening to you, brother, sister, there's fruit of the Spirit's work in your life. Only fruitful trees avoid the fire. Repent genuinely, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Let me pray. Father, I'm thankful for uh, your word, for this passage. I pray, Lord, that you would do a good work with it and that you would uh, convince us once again that the gospel creates in us a desire, a need that is other-focused and not merely focused on ourselves. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.